You know, it's such a shame that it's so hard to find good, honest, legal help these days. How to dream, cowboys. Welcome back, HBO Boys and Girls. We are talking about Perry Mason on HBO. And today we're doing Chapter 6, entitled Chapter 6. There's no titles still. Uh, something they gotta fix for Season 2. Can they at this point? I feel like that it's just telling us, the audience, that they've, they've given in to the peer pressure. Although, we might be the only people on Earth who are giving them shit. For not having alliterative titles like the original. But still, they should. Yeah, good point. Yeah, write your senators, people, and uh, we gotta get this done. Seriously. Perry Mason, season two. Coming back, by the way. And as it has been announced, they're actually, like, doing things on the internet. Snapchat is occurring with Perry Mason memes. Uh, The HBO Instagram is way more Perry Mason. It's like they realized that it existed. This episode, like the last two before it, was directed by Denise Gamzee-Ergevin, who has directed, like, the best episode so far. But this is her last one. So I listened to this other podcast. I, I'm i not even purposely not saying the name. I can't recall the name. Because <laughs> I was listening to podcasts about Perry Mason just to get a vibe on what people felt. And so many of them were negative. People really, really hating on this season of Perry Mason. And I say guffaw, sir. I like every episode more. This episode was so goddamn good, in my opinion. Right. I mean, the the people that don't like Perry Mason season one are probably the people who are praising Westworld season three through the roof. Right. I mean, maybe. I'm assuming the people who are watching season one of Perry Mason and don't like it at all didn't watch season three of Westworld because they couldn't (laughs) get through season two. And honestly, that I can't hold very much against them. But I'll say, I think we have a huge advantage in Perry Mason season one because we watched some of the old episodes. So, like, it feels like we're getting things paid off for us. Yeah, uh, especially in this episode. But I mean, we'll get there. Fine. I'm Ryan and you're James, by the way. Oh, right. also, I... side note, sidebar even, because uh, we're talking and doing, you know, legal terms. Yeah, meet me in my chambers. <laughs> <laughs> Not sex. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash HBOboys, H-B-O-B-O-I-Z. One dollar a month, you get at least two extra podcasts of bonus content. And yeah, so... This last one, I really, really enjoyed. Maybe one of my favorite podcasts that we've ever done. We did Relationship Advice with our pal of the show, Adam Carner. Fire, fire, fire. So, yeah. Head on over there. A dollar a month. uh, We got his first and last name. What's the social security number, too? Can you say that on the podcast? (laughs) 056-82-3256. So this episode starts with Emily's trial. We're now underway. In the opening statements, Barnes, played by Bill from King of the Hill, Stephen Root. Famed character actor. He gives like exactly the argument that Perry predicted in the previous episodes. Emily's a greedy cheater, and she wanted to rob her husband and rich secret father-in-law so she could go, I don't know, off to the countryside and bang her paramour, George, 
And that's why she orchestrated the kidnapping of her own baby. And Stephen Root is doing a great job, looking like he's having a great time. Barnes is really enjoying this opening statement. And as he finishes his opening statement, he, like, leans over the judge's box, and he gives the judge, like, total fuck-me eyes. Oh, yeah, no. They're gonna bang (laughs) in their chambers, like the sex joke that you did earlier. But this time, it's real. Steven Root is giving an incredibly rich performance. His opening statement is so, so good. Della, on the side of the room, is drawing all of the jurors and their disapproving faces. So, as usual, MVP is Della. And Matt on the side is looking incredibly vexed because, you know, Maynard Barnes is talking about how he has been recently cheated on and he is still not particularly psyched about that and also has like a secret deal with his stepfather to build Christ City out in the boonies. So Jesus Town, USA, Or, or more like Sister Alice Town, really. Do you actually think it has to do with Sister Alice? I feel like Herman Baggerly's doing this shit, and it is outside of the radiant god sphere. Uh, well, well, it'll, uh, this is gonna come up later in the episode, as I, as I keep saying. Fuck. <laughs> Perry does his opening defense. You know, it sounds shit. like he might have something good to say, but he's also got the Rona, and he can't yeah. stop coughing. He is. I felt so awful for him. It was the first time he had ever said any words in a courtroom for someone else and not, like, in his own defense. And he choked, literally and figuratively. Later on at Perry's farmhouse, which is now defense headquarters, Pete and Della's girlfriend Hazel are helping out with the case. Perry really wants to connect Ennis to the kidnappers, but he can't find any clear way to do so. Peter, this is funny, Peter seems, like, really hurt that Perry is now a lawyer instead of a PI. Yeah, like, he took a step forward, and that step will ruin their friendship. Every time I see Pete on screen, I have this piece of sentiment occurring, because I truly believe Pete Strickland is not going to make it through season one of this television show. So every time I see him, it's like, this might be the last time. Yeah, so him and him and Perry have, like, a, a really vague fight he's like now that you're a fancy lawyer what does that mean you know what it means now tell me what it means I want you know what it means uh underwritten fight (laughs) yeah it means we can't be friends anymore and hold hands on the sidewalk when we want to cross and be there for each other stare into each other's eyes is that what you want to hear the next day in court for some reason barnes has matthew dobson read the love letters emily sent to george just you know reading out loud to everyone how he was getting cucked and yeah. then he starts to cry about it, which, you know, just makes him look even more like a loser. Yeah, but that's what Barnes wanted. I'm, I, yeah, yeah, just keep crying. Make the tears bigger, like rain. Perry cross-examines Matthew, and they, he establishes he's the bastard son of Herman Baggerly. But it also comes out that he never once told Emily about this until the kidnapping and the ransom money. Yeah, the fuck? Like that is that's not just blow the entire case open like it does like they moved across the country and you couldn't mention that you have a rich father like that's the reason you're doing it she didn't have to know you sexist pig also he's a gambler but apparently he's fucking terrible at it <laughs> he's already racked up three thousand grand in debt which he had to go to daddy to pay off. Perry, who is hardcore channeling Raymond Burr, the original Perry Mason. Well, not even the original, but the famous Perry Mason from the 1950s version. It looks like he's slowly turning into him. 
Like, in 20 years, he could be him. And on that day, his shoulder grew three sizes. Right, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, his, his shoulders are slowly growing centimeters every single day. And his forehead's going to become more wrinkled, and he's going to stop smiling and just adopt a kind of bemused grimace. He's just looking more put together. Also, by the way, this is the second time he has spoken in court, and he does much better than last time. But to be fair, saying anything at all would have been better. Yeah, he points out all the facts that work against Matthew. You've got these gambling debts. You and not Emily actually knew that your dad could come up with the money. And Matthew fucking freaks out. And he screams at Emily, and he says maybe Charlie is not even his real son, and he just looks insane. And it's, what the you know, fuck it's is like, this, Jerry Springer? Right. Like, <laughs> and then he ends it with, I hope they hang you, you lying whore. And I was like, Jerry, Jerry. But, I mean, it looks pretty good for the defense, because, you know, Matthew is a key witness of the prosecution, and he, he fucking eats shit. The boy loses his mind. Maynard Barnes off the rails. Although, he doesn't seem to, like... Let that happen on his face. He's like, I still got this. I'm still going to be mayor. Peter goes to George Gannon's house, which is being remodeled now that, you know, he doesn't need it anymore. And he steals some unopened mail. It's a federal crime. <laughs> uh, Pete Strickland don't give a shit. Also, by the way, again, I'm just like, oh, yeah, steal that mail, Pete. You're not going to be around for much longer. Barnes calls, it's not actually a surprise witness, but it kind of is because Perry's never heard of him. He's like, oh no, we gave you, we gave the discovery for this witness to, uh, the last lawyer, Frank Dillon. Oh, he didn't get it to you? Whoopsie. And as you might recall, Frank Dillon was a shill hired slash working with Maynard Barnes. So this is obviously something that Barnes is testing Perry Mason over. Can he just use Perry Mason as a malleable piece of clay and do whatever he wants to him, stomp over him with his boots. So he's just like, yeah, uh, Terrence Smith can't do this any other day. So uh, we just rock and rolling now, huh? And Perry Mason, thankfully, is just like, uh, no, this is Yeah, like bullshit. objection? <laughs> and, and, and the judge, who's, you know, Barnes' schoolboy best friend, is like, well, this, you know, probably against court procedure, but Prosecutor Barnes, please, you know, let the defense know about all your witnesses from here on out, okay? Yeah, I'll let you do it this one time, but you can't do it again. And also, by the way, isn't he supposed to be EB's friend? They were, like, probably clerked under the same future Supreme Court justice, but at the same time, apparently not. Him and Maynard Barnes sitting in a tree... Right. Well, Barnes has all this power, and, you know, he wants to run for mayor and probably president someday. So he's like, I'll appoint you to the Supreme Court if you help me put this innocent woman in jail. <laughs> you got yourself a goddamn deal, sir. Terrence Smith, I fucking love this performance. He's this extremely huge-eyed, very stiff and stilted weirdo motel owner. He looks like an he's anime like character. Man. <laughs> and he very geekily tells this story of a time when George and Emily came to his motel to bang. Mm. And while they were banging, they had the baby locked in a different hotel room. A terrible look. Well, Just that's his very story. bad mothering. Yeah. That's his story, James. Locked. Emily would later point out that they had the door open. James, right, she could okay. see the baby while they were banging. It was never yeah. any danger. Listen, they, she could hear the baby crying. That makes it better, right? Also, by the way, I really like how this was shot. 
the way that Terrence Smith knows that this all was happening was because he has a peephole and he was watching them fuck. And then he also heard the baby cry and was like, uh, you, can you please look at your baby? Or would, like he says he said that. But he was probably just looking through that hole watching them fuck for a pretty long time. That night, Perry screams at Emily about not having disclosed this information to him. He wasn't prepared because he didn't know this witness was going to be called. And Emily lied to him and said that she never actually was with George in that way. And so he had nothing prepared for this kind of attack. And basically throws her out of the room crying And then Sister Alice approaches Perry and tries to get him to forgive Emily and tries to offer her moral support. And Perry rejects it. He's like, no, I don't I don't believe in God and I don't like you. So don't try to comfort me. So when he's yelling at Emily, I feel like this is part of his first season arc of learning to trust women again after his wife assumably left him for drinking and not paying attention to her or their son And he blames her for his life of not being a full-time father. So, you know, he's always been yelling at Della, even though she's been killing it the entire time. He blames Emily, even though he's trying to defend her. And in this instance, he's a little mad at Emily because they got screwed over in court because she didn't tell him some shit. And he perhaps lays into her a little too hard. He then goes downstairs because Emily is staying at Sister Alice's house. And correct me if I'm wrong, but after Sister Alice was like, you should probably go easier on her and also find God. And he was like, told you I left God in France. After that, did you get the feeling that Sister Alice was looking to bang? I also kind of had, well, because she's like in her nightgown and she steps very close to Perry. Oh, it wasn't her nightgown shouting the feelings of wanting to bang. Was her eyes, James. Yeah, and she gets very up close to him. And I also, I was like, well, they're not going to kiss, are they? But they don't, because that would be fucking ridiculous. No, but it's laying some groundwork that I am here for. Back at Defense Headquarters, Hazel has found that one of the kidnappers used to live in Denver at the same time frame, at least, that Ennis lived in Denver. And Perry's like, yeah, that's pretty lame. That is pretty lame. Also, by the way... We don't have anything, so I'll take any evidence that I can get. If the DA, by the way, is called out for not handing over all of the evidence, which Perry did that day in court, they send everything, and they purposely just sent them as many boxes as humanly possible to make it difficult for Perry and his team to go through, although that did backfire slightly when they found the Denver thing. Perry gets a bit angry. He starts knocking things over. He goes out to look at the airport after hearing of the Denver idea. And Pete comes out again, hands him the mail. And the mail in George's mail was a letter from the Radiant God Church. And it intimates that George was possibly stealing? Right. Well, it turns out George was having the church invest in a shell company that he was actually the owner of that didn't actually do anything, which is uh, textbook embezzling. And as Perry looks over at the airport, he's also thinking like, well, I think I'm sending Pete to Denver. Pete also recommends that Perry totally betray Officer Paul Drake's trust and and out him as uh, having found more evidence of uh, the George Gannon crime scene even though Paul 
already had Perry promise that he wouldn't. Right, the dentures. But he gave Paul Drake his word, so how valuable is Perry Mason's word for 1,000, Alex? At the trial, Paul is called to the stand, and he testifies to the narrative of the kidnapper's killing that supports the report that Ennis and Holcomb came up with. Basically, like, yeah, uh... George Gannon was the ultimate badass. He walked in, even even though he was like five foot three, and he shot the other guys and stood in that one dude's neck, and then he got shot, but then walked home anyway to shoot himself. <laughs> so Perry gives Paul Drake the chance to say what Paul Drake, if he does say, is just in large trouble. Like his whole life is in large trouble. Paul doesn't choose to do so, but he looks like he was close. And then Perry is looking down at the dentures like, am I going to force his hand? But as it turns out, his word is better than most. And he just, like, sits down. Perry does a good, this is, like, almost a bit out of, like, my cousin Vinny. Where he's like, okay, so you're saying, you know, he left the crime scene and then walked all the way to the exit 40 feet. Okay, this is about 40 feet. So, you know, there's a blood trail coming down for the roof, but then not out the door interesting that he just suddenly stopped bleeding when it was time to leave yeah he's doing a really good job of speaking to the person whom is currently being questioned but not really he's speaking to the jurors he walks 40 feet be like that is far huh you guys can see how far this is that's crazy you're crazy perry does not challenge paul when paul says that he found nothing else at the crime scene and then Paul gets off the stand and walks out to leave, and Ennis gives him, like, a very gross smile and nod, like, good job, good job covering up for me. Right. So, Paul Drake has been struggling with his moral character lately, and that, perhaps, is just another weight on the side of, oh, gross. The next day at Sister Alice's church, Perry asks the head accountant, a Mr. Seidel, about George's fake shell company. Apparently there are many different companies that the church invests in as part of a financial plan. They get returns on this, props up the church. And Perry uses this as an excuse to take a look at their books. And he sees that several investments were made by GG, George Gannon, but then several others were made by JH. And Seidel doesn't want to talk about it. While Perry is distracting him, Della swipes a bunch of records off the table and puts them in her purse. Swiper, no swiping, except for Della just did. She took the non-verbal cue that Perry gave her by dropping his hat on the books, and she rightfully stole it. She is a great partner. Elder Brown still outside the church screaming about Easter arriving very soon and Charlie Ten being days. resurrected. Yeah. So there's been about a, a two-month jump between Chapter 5 and Chapter 6. Elder Brown still very mad, and Elder Seidel, as you said, inside, trying to be as helpful as possible, but also being like, why are you guys in this room? You guys should leave. Leave now. Paul gets a huge kickback in cash from the chief of police for uh, giving that false testimony. And if the little gross look from Ennis was a tiny weight on Paul Drake's morality scale. This was a gigantic anvil. At City Hall, Barnes is worried that Ennis will be called to the stand, and so they're kind of prepping him in case he has to give testimony. And Barnes and Holcomb are pissed that Ennis's fingerprints are all over this case, 
and how he jumped over the detective that was supposed to work Emily's case and stole it out from under him. They're like, why would you do that? And he's like, oh, well, it was a high-profile case. I wanted the glory for myself. And they're like, uh-huh, mm. sure. Sure, that sounds like it makes total sense. I loved this scene so much. Barnes knows he is lying 100%. He knows he doesn't care. All he needs is for Ennis to do what he wants him to do. So he's just like, so answer the questions better and with less like you're an asshole. And Holcomb is learning in real time that Ennis is completely mixed up in this thing. And he's like, are you kidding me, dude? This... You, you suck. At Alice's house, she gets permission, written permission from Emily, to disinter Charlie's body. I mean, you need to. If you're going to resurrect the body, you need it, right? Birdie is not at all into this anymore, and she actually thinks that they ought to abandon the church, pack up their shit, and split town. Alice says, there's ain't no way that I'm doing that. You can run, but I'm not going to. And also, by the way, I'm remembering a lot of things lately birdie right and she also says like you're scared i'm not scared so it's like fuck they're absolutely involved in this shit <laughs> whom sister alice or birdie i think both, both of them in some or way. at yeah. least birdie yeah birdie is for sure i feel like birdie is going to be the one on the stand who breaks you know what i mean Right, in classic Perry Mason form, someone is going to confess on the stand. Right, that's how Perry Mason, if you guys don't know, that's how Perry Mason wins every one of his cases. Someone (laughs) just on the stand being like, oh, you got me! Oh, with your words and your tricks, Perry Mason, you got me cold. That will be Bertie. Paul visits Perry very late at night, and he thanks Perry for not pushing him, and he apologizes for not coming clean on the stand. And Perry is pretty cool about it. He tells him, you know, like, no, I understand the position you're in, and we already had this agreement, so. Yeah, but Paul Drake is very, very impressed that Perry Mason was a man of his word. I, You know, Paul Drake doesn't have a lot of people in his life who are people of their words. Paul goes on to bemoan the ways in which he is restrained by the racist systems within the LAPD and has decided he's just not going to play ball anymore. Yeah. He says he can't handcuff white people. The fuck is that? He shows Perry the bribe that he got and then declares his intention to help save Emily. And he drops a little envelope marked evidence into one of Perry's discovery boxes. Oops. How did that get there? Anyway, I gotta go. (laughs) He's also, I think he's a little drunk. Could be. Could be. Della goes to City Hall to dig up the church's financial records. It's just a funny little tete-a-tete with the clerk, where he's like, I need a reason. She's like, what? No, I don't want to give you one. Well, I gotta write something down. She's like, oh, write down your mother, alright? Just give me the records. <laughs> right. Della's out snooping, getting the Articles of Incorporation for the Radiant Church of God, and so, you know, like, again, Paul Drake eventually is gonna be Perry Mason's right-hand man, the private detective doing, assumably, what Della is doing now. But, like, who needs him? She's doing great. Peter goes to interview some Polacks in Denver, Wow. One of the older people there does recognize the picture of Pinky and fucking spits all over it. And then, you know, incidentally all over Peter's hand. (laughs) You think I don't remember the guy who gave me this? Which is a very, like, Pirates of the Caribbean line. But he points at a large scar on his face. And the dude who got shot through the briefcase apparently had stabbed him as they were on opposite sides of a bit of a... Miner's Coral. 
In the records room, Della finds out that J.H., we should say I'm also a J.H., Nice. Uh, has has been working with the church is Jim Hicks is his name, and that he is also dun 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 an employee of Herman Baggerly. Oh, the webs we weave. Next, Virgil takes the stand, and Barnes is questioning him, and all he gets is that yeah, Charlie had been dead for a long time when they did the ransom Passover, and also that his eyes were sewn open. Post-mortem, which, one, yeah, obviously, and two, thank God. Right. (laughs) That's not something I wanted to think about. (laughs) It sucks that we had to, like, choose between which version of that would be better. Virgil's back, baby, played by Jefferson Mays of Clinton, Connecticut, our hometown, and he's in another episode. I'm so glad he's a large part of this show. Yeah, Jefferson, if you're going to be at Lenny and Joe's anytime this week, Ryan's looking for you. Yeah, the one in Madison, not the one in Westbrook, okay? I'm not a pleb. (laughs) Perry starts to cross-examine Virgil, and he has him look at the mystery piece of evidence that Paul dropped off, and it's the missing half of George's dentures. Barnes immediately flips out and tries to object and calls for a sidebar. Perry very loudly explains so that the, <laughs> the jury can hear him. This is pertinent evidence, everybody! You know, this implies that George was murdered and there is someone else involved who, you know, we don't have as part of this narrative. Perry assumes that this will be inadmissible. So, you know, in case that occurs, he screams it at the jury beforehand. So they, you know, the judge can say strike that off the record and forget that as much as he wants. But I think if I'm in the jury, I'm like, I mean, I'm not going to forget that at all. That is pertinent. In the judge's chambers, the judge throws out this evidence as well as the second autopsy because they were obtained illegally, and Perry's totally outraged and calls the whole thing rigged. I mean, you got in trouble from the principal, but to be fair, the day before, Maynard Barnes did something similar and (laughs) was just like, let to do it. Rock and roll, buddy. Maynard Barnes can do whatever he wants. But, you know, the point is, Perry Mason had to put up a fight. He can't just be like, okay... Sorry. In the next scene, Paul sends his wife Claire out of the city for her own safety. And this oh. entire scene, I was like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, oh god, Ryan's gonna be right. Something horrible's gonna happen. I thought the car was gonna explode. <laughs> right, like, like in Westworld season three, like crispy chicken Charlotte Hale. But it didn't happen. I still think that Pete's fate and Clara's fate are not tied together, but it's still gonna be the same thing. General death. And, uh, oh boy, yeah. Every time either of them are on screen, my heart races a little faster. Perry totally despairs about how he lost his evidence, and now apparently Ennis isn't even going to take the stand. Della brings him a title deed to a large plot of land. It belongs to a shell company run by J.H. Jim Harris and owned by Herman Baggerly. Isn't it Jim Hicks? Jim Hicks. What did I say? I don't know. Something else. <laughs> Something Harris. But yeah, the point is that they're paying off people with large plots of land. Doesn't George also own a plot of land? Right, and, and they're giving them out for a dollar. They're selling land and this property for a dollar, and it's worth a ton of money. So, again, Della just absolutely murdering it as a private investigator. And yeah, Perry was mad that Ennis isn't going to take the stand. But we know why Ennis isn't going to take the stand, because Maynard Barnes tried to get him ready, and then at the end, Maynard Barnes was like, I am not doing that shit. He is going to fail epically. In Denver, 
Peter goes to a steel mill company and he finds out that the kidnappers were corporate goons hired to break up a steelworker strike. So just real pieces of shit. Right. Uh, and, and that's where that old man got the scar on his face. And then Pete Strickland looks up and a picture on the wall has Elder Seidel right there. He was an accountant in Denver before transitioning to the church. He paid a bunch of the people to do the unsavory things during the Ludlow Massacre of 1914, including Detective Ennis, who was a Pinkerton at the time, and the two of the kidnappers, Sarecki and Nowick, whom were just general ne'er-do-wells. So a few things. One, the lady in this scene with a foul-mouthed secretary, amazing. She was so goddamn good. And also, I looked up the Ludlow Massacre, and this is what I found. The Ludlow Massacre was a massacre perpetrated by anti-striker militia during the Colorado Coa Field War. The Colorado National Guard and the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company guards attacked a tent colony of 1,200 striking coal miners and their families in Ludlow, Colorado, on April 20th, 1914, with the National Guard using machine guns to fire into the colony. Approximately 21 people, including miners, M-I-N-E-R-S, not minors, <laughs> including minors, wives, and children. Like, make a distinction between children. Some, some minors. Yeah, actually. some minors. Were killed. The chief owner of the mine, John D. Rockefeller Jr., was widely excoriated for having orchestrated the massacre. So Yeah, well, it's just part of a, a larger tale of, you know, labor rights in America and how it hasn't really been going uh, their way. <laughs> you know? No. So Elder Seidel was an accountant before he moved to Los Angeles. And, and obviously there are valuable pieces of land and money being handed out to a group of people. So... Uh. Who, who knows? The secretary there is like, yeah, we don't have records of the kidnappers because, like, the people we hired to beat up the strikers are just, like, random gang members we pulled off the street. It's like, here's 50 bucks. You want to go attack some innocent strikers? <laughs> yes, I sure do. And also, by the way, they paid the Pinkertons and the kidnappers and the ne'er-do-wells all at the same time because they all did the same thing. The final witness that Barnes calls is actually the coin-apported matron who was supposed to be looking after Emily, but didn't when she was in the county jail. This goddamn bitch. She takes the stand and lies about hearing Emily confess to Sister Alice, and the court erupts into chaos, and they do an emergency adjournment, and as they're leaving, Perry's, like, driving the car, and he, like, channels the ghost of E.B., Oh, yeah. He's like, how did I do, E.B.? And he's like, well, boy, oh, I got some observations for you. Holcomb goes to confront Ennis at his house. He finds him working on a fancy roadster in the garage. Ennis claims that he swiped the case in order to advance both their careers. Yeah, I did this for both of us. Holcomb freaks out and starts smashing Ennis's car and demands that he tells him his involvement. Ennis basically confesses, and he's like, yeah... Uh, I'm dirty, and I was paid to do this, and clearly it didn't go well. But guess what, Detective Holcomb? I learned it from watching you. Yeah, he threatens Holcomb at the end, like, you were running the, the scene, you were running points, so if I go down, we both go down. And then Holcomb caught me by surprise when Ennis was just like, so what are you going to do about it? And Holcomb's like, well, we're going to find the people who can put their thumb on you and kill them. I was like, oh, Oh. 
Right, so not looking good for Paul, not looking good for Peter, not looking good for Perry. Clara, the child, just a whole smorgasbord. But you can't kill Perry, right? Right, it's his origin story, so, and then there's a season two. No, I'm not even saying that, I'm saying, like, a plan to kill the lawyer of Emily Dotson's, like, a bad fucking plan. Isn't that obvious to the jurors, like, oh, like, he was getting close, he was getting good, and then someone killed him? Perry drives out to the countryside to visit Baggerly's plot of land, and he continues to argue with the ghost of E.B. Maybe he might be losing it. This is the best. It's the best part of the whole episode. He's angry at E.B. for killing himself, leaving Perry alone. You should be here doing your fucking job, you fucking coward. Matthew Reese doing that in, like, a John Lithgow accent. Kind of nuts. Like, the best acting Matthew Reese has done so far, in my opinion. He finds a little cottage on the property and goes up to look for Jim Hicks. And when he finds him, he's been waiting for Perry Mason and he's got a shotgun. Dun dun dun. I have a feeling though this is false drama. Yeah. He's gonna be like, come in, Perry. I'm gonna blow the case wide open for you. For sure, with the shotgun. <laughs> yeah, no, he just has a shotgun at all times when he opens the door. I, I, I'm pretty sure he, he seemed nice enough. Like, yeah, fuck you. Herman Bagley's a piece of shit. Let's get into it. So this seems like it would be a penultimate episode, but there's actually two episodes left. Mm. I have a strange feeling that the next episode is going to feel like more like an action movie than a court drama. And then episode eight is going to feel like the end of the court drama where someone confesses Paul Drake doesn't have a wife anymore. Pete Strickland is dead. Charlie was not resurrected. Actually, no, the resurrection probably is the last episode, right? Do we think, like, Alice is not going to resurrect the baby. That's not going to happen. Unless it's a farce, unless Charlie isn't actually dead, but I don't think so anymore. I I think she's going to fail at resurrecting a dead baby, and it's going to go... As I said, I I have a one-year-old baby. You could not mix up two one-year-old babies, unless they were identical twins or something. You are the foremost authority on what babies look like, apparently. <laughs> I mean, no, it, it, you know, it, it would be like mixing up two elementary school kids. I mean, that, that a newborn baby, maybe, right? If it was a newborn baby of the same complexion and hair color, maybe you could be like mixing them up, right? But once it's a year old, you know, now you're dealing with not a, not a little tiny baby, but like basically a little person, right? And you very easily tell them apart. You know, I, I think Charlie's dead. I think Charlie's not coming back to life. I don't think Charlie was supposed to die. Whomever was at the top of this embezzlement didn't think, hey, let's kill the baby. And then so its eyes open so it looks alive. I feel like that's the idea of someone like less astute, like less large plan kind of thing. Like, oh, fuck, it looks dead. So its eyes open. So I wonder whether the next episode will be more court related or whether it will feel like. Well, I'll tell you my prediction for the next episode. Okay. What is the HBO formula? The second to last episode is the yeah. one where all the horrible shit happens. True. <laughs> True. Someone's going to die if not multiple people next episode. I yeah, Rest also in believe. peace, Peter, Peter Strickland. <laughs> do you think he's leaving denver oh yeah i think you know he's gonna get back to la and then ennis is gonna fucking ennis and holcomb are gonna kill him like right off the plane oh my god lupe is lupe gonna die dude yeah well see all these characters who are not in 
the 1950s version of Perry Mason uh, are are kind of in danger. But I wonder if Claire is immune to that because they've already changed the character of Paul so much. Who knows? No. I have this vision in my head all of a sudden of Perry Mason not being at his house, Lupe and Pete Strickland landing in their plane, Holcomb and Ennis lighting that plane up with bullets, Lupe and Pete both dying, and them burning down Perry Mason's house oh because they think it's it's lupe up up in the plane with perry yeah lupe is the one who flew him to denver right so when they see the plane they're like ah that's him and his his pilot girlfriend it it doesn't even i think they just like light the plane up they don't they don't really care who's in it they know pete's in it yeah so that's our prediction for the next episode or at least the next two episodes pete is done for yeah shit's about to go down it's about to be real (laughs) bad news for all the other characters are maybe but i would say Pete's death is like on lock. Right. If he doesn't, I'll be incredibly surprised. Man, I loved this episode though. I like this show so much. I was shadow boxing a bunch. I can't wait for next Sunday at 9 p.m. I'm so glad they renewed it. I don't know what yeah, they're going to do too. for season two, but. Well, I hope hopefully another case and, and they'll get. Obviously another case. Hamilton Burger in there. Right. Exactly. The Hamburglar, baby. Hi right, guys. Well, if you're just listening, it means a lot to us. If you want to go the extra mile, you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Westworld Ryan. I'm at James Watches Men. Or you can subscribe to us and review us on any of the relevant podcast apps. That's always helpful. If you'd really like to support the show, you can, as Ryan mentioned at the top, throw us a dollar or more on Patreon, which will get you some bonus episodes. As Ryan said, we just had a really good, crazy one. Just came out last week, and we'll have another one next week. And aside from that, you can also get access to our patrons only Discord. We can chat with Ryan and I, and we'll read your name out at the end of each show. Like I'm about to do right now. Branko, Hardboiled Greg, Nicole, Dave 11, Westworld, James Watch My Dong. You got it. I'm watching right now through a telescope. <laughs> Cliff Wilding, Hello underscore Yo, James Christopher, Atheism is Unstoppable, Chris Wood, Brent Gen, Day 11, Westworld, Carol, Andreas Lee, Craig, Bakuman, John Jurz, and Major Woody. Thank you very much for your dollars. Hey, by the way, go look at the Patreon. I renamed all of the tiers. I didn't add mm. any value to them, but I did mm. write stuff and rename them, and I also redid the the pictures for it i also had some logos made for the patreon only podcast yeah did you make those yourself no i paid someone to oh, do that okay, on the right. fivers <laughs> so i'll say you did a good job but you didn't actually do it so. no i but i paid the ten dollars james i deserve the credit <laughs> but any hoozles i'm glad that you're watching a dong from afar i'm glad we get more perry mason episodes i can't wait for next week Hua! who does that who does hua? The, the Marines do that. No, no, it's someone yes, they, else. Well, they, they definitely do. Maybe someone else does it, but someone else. Anyway, I join us here next it. week for Chapter Seven. Someone, the perilous Pete party. <laughs> the perilous Pete party. Ah, uh, hua. Al Pacino. Al Pacino does the hua, dude. In what movie? In every movie he's in, he's ever been in. Okay. Uh, Incent of a Woman? Yeah, especially Incent of a Woman. In <laughs> Heat at the Table with Robert De Niro. hoo He does it uh, in, in The Irishman. I heard you paint houses, hoo <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I, I could do that for you. I could do that for you, hoo Well, you can't say my hoo That's my hoo-ah, not your hoo Hmm. Hua. And 
scene. And scene. We did it. Hoo-ah.